in the book of Micah, chapter 6. I'm trying to talk extra long to give you time to find the book of Micah, right? I know that's a little bit more difficult to find than Genesis or, or, or John there. So Micah is in the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. You've made it to the New Testament. Flip back a few books there and uh, you'll find Micah chapter number 6. All right, if you can, stand for the reading of God's Word if you're so able. And we're going to read verse 1 down through verse number Four, verse 1 down through verse number 4. I'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read every other verse together. We'll read responsibly. Verse 1 says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Together, verse 2. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath the controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee, and wherein have I worried thee? Testify against me, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The title of the sermon this morning is this, Why are you putting God on trial? Why are you putting God on trial? This is something we all are tempted to do. Some of us do on a regular basis. We, we hold God in contempt because we're not happy with the way things are going in our life or maybe a set of circumstances that have soured us or maybe you believe that everywhere you go, trouble just seems to follow you and if God loves you, why would He do that to you? And if we're not careful, we put God on trial. So that's what the children of Israel were guilty of here in the book of Micah and uh, we're going to take that thought apart this morning and see how the prophet Micah addressed this question to the nation of Israel as he questioned them and said, why are you putting God on trial? Let's pray. Lord, this morning, would you give us clarity of speech and also discernment of ear? Help us as a church to be together on the same page. Lord, if I uh, preach exactly what you want, but Lord, our ears are not in tune, then it's a waste of time. And if the ears are in tune, but Lord, I'm not speaking the words you'd have, it's also a waste of time. Spirit of God, we need you here. We need you working in our midst. God, we want you to receive glory and honor and praise by not only what's done here, but by the way we live our lives when we leave. And so God, draw us to you. Help, Lord, those that are discouraged and struggling to know your hand of love and care in their life today. And Lord, may this time be an encouragement to those that need it an exhortation to those that need it, and, Lord, rebuke to those that need that as well. Lord God, help us this morning in each and every way possible. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in Micah 6, the year was around 709 B.C. The Assyrian army had grown in both size and power, and they were steamrolling countries much like Germany did in the early days of its terror in Europe. Several hundred years prior, Solomon's son Rehoboam had acted the fool and allowed the nation of Israel to be divided into two countries. The the northern kingdom was taken over by a man named Jeroboam. And uh, uh, 19 total kings would rule this territory Uh, And even one of, and every single one of them would, as the Bible describes it, do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. Every 
single king of the northern kingdom would do that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, Can I ask you a question this morning? How patient are you as a leader? How patient are you as a leader? You have people that follow you and you give orders and those orders are ignored or not followed and you're trying to create a culture right within your leadership. Maybe it's your home or your place of, of work or um, uh, whatever it would be. Uh, you, you, you're the leader and you're trying to bring a culture and you need, as the leader, you need fellowship. You need people to buy in. How, how patient are you as a leader? How much patience do you have? God's patience, we find by the time we get to the book of Micah, God's patience had been maxed out. He was out of patience. There was no patience left. Uh, Through many prophets, he told his people this. He said, if you choose sin over me, I will punish you. God tried many tactics, many methods to draw his people back in love with him, but they just were not going to cooperate. God allowed the Assyrians to raid the northern kingdom called Israel and to carry them away into captivity. And they were under assault. As they were under assault, God used Micah to preach them three sermons, which are found in this book. Now, Micah lived in Morsheth Gath, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, his sermons were aimed primarily at Samaria, the capital Israel of uh, the capital of Israel, and secondarily his sermons were aimed at Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. Here in chapter 6, we find God and his people embroiled in a double lawsuit, in a double lawsuit. Look down at verse number 2. Look down at verse 2 of Micah 6. The Bible says, "Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy and ye strong foundations of the earth for the Lord hath a controversy with his people and he will plead Israel now that word controversy we find in verse 2 that word controversy means dispute brawl quarrel lawsuit legal case or legal process that's what the word controversy means. Israel's attitude is one that made God the defendant. Their attitude is very accusatory, um, uh, uh, that God has neglected them and allowed all of this bad to come down on their lives. And God allows himself to be, himself to be a defendant for a time and then turns the table on his people and makes them the defendant. Makes them the defendant. They're suing God. They're putting God on the stand. And God's willing to sit on the stand and, and be held um, in contempt by Israel. But by the time we get to the end of Micah 6, uh, the tables have turned and God is now the prosecuting uh, attorney. And, and Israel has now become the defendant. Israel is now on the defense. Many people today... Uh, have felt that somehow life has cheated them. They look at some deep hurt in their life, and they feel as though God has neglected them. And whether or not they have said it out loud, their actions would dictate that God, who is the perfect judge, is somehow guilty. Guilty of ignoring them. Guilty of allowing some major hurt in their life. 
that God is guilty of treating them in some unfair manner? Guilty of allowing the sin of others to adversely affect them? Somehow God is guilty of allowing abuse to damage their life or the life of someone they love. Hear me and hear me loud and clear. Don't make the mistake of putting the perfect judge, God, on trial. Don't make the mistake of questioning a perfect God while you yourself are imperfect. I propose that you and I have no right to put God on trial. When hard times come into your life and you are tempted to ask God, where were you? Or how could you let this happen? My friend, you are treading on dangerous ground. This morning's message will be a two-part sermon. We'll begin this morning and conclude this evening. There are a total of seven observations that I have drawn out of this final sermon of Micah. And we'll look at three of those seven observations this morning. Let's jump in. Observation number one. Point number one. Notice the court's audience. The court's audience. Look down at Micah chapter 6. And look down at verse number 1. The Bible says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, before the mountains, and let the hills, the hills, hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath the controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Oftentimes throughout Scripture you will find the prophets or the Psalms referred to nature Such as these verses do. We see here mountains and hills and strong foundations. What else is God talking about here? Is God actually asking the mountains and the hills to be the audience, the peanut gallery of the trial? Uh, No, there's more to it here. The mountains represent the large kingdoms of the world. The hills represent the small rural people groups. Um, uh, God was saying to Israel, if you want to take me to court then let's do this in front of all mankind. You want to take me to court and accuse me, then let's invite all of the Gentile world in uh, to the courtroom and let's let those that dwell on the mountains, uh, the the large, uh, uh, strong, uh, uh, foundational cities of this world, and those who dwell in the hills, those that live in the rural, uh, more country areas, let's invite everyone in, everyone the same, and let's let them hear you accuse me of what you think I've done wrong. Look back at verse two and you find the phrase mountains mountains again this refers to the large kingdoms strong foundations of the earth uh, those nations uh, who have been established for many years mountains strong foundations of the earth the people of israel were god's chosen people and they were getting ready to go to court against their god and god was supremely confident of how this trial would turn out He wanted the world to see that he was right and his people were wrong. He wanted the people to see, okay, you all are holding a grudge against me and you want to attack me, let's make this public and the whole world will see how right I am and how wrong you are. The court's audience. Number two, notice, observation number two, notice the people's accusation. The people's accusation. What exactly was the accusation, the charges being levied against Almighty God? Look back at verse 1. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills 
Hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. Look at verse 3. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Look here. Testify against me. Testify against me. All right. Let me hear it. You have a you have accusations against me. You have charges to lay against me. You're holding me in contempt. Let's hear it. Testify against me. We've called the people of the world to hear. Let's lay it all out here this morning. You may read this passage and say to yourself, Pastor, I don't see anywhere in these verses where the Israelites actually accuse God of anything. And to that I would reply that actions speak louder than words. These people had given up on God. Totally given up on God. They had thrown their relationship with the God of heaven, the one that had chosen them, they had thrown that relationship to the curb. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice letter A. They accused through their disobedience. They accused through their disobedience. God had given the Israelites laws in order to protect them. By the way, what I'm about to say right here might just be one of those light bulb moments for someone who has a hard time with Old Testament laws. All right, the laws of the Old Testament can be broken down categorically into three uh, can be broken up categor- categorically three ways. All right, um, uh, there are three ways. Here they are: civil laws, dietary laws, and moral laws. I recommend you write that down. Civil laws. Dietary laws and moral laws. You go through the Old Testament, you read all the laws, all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. They're civil laws, dietary laws, and moral laws. Can you imagine a country that didn't have any civil laws? Imagine a country that had no speed limits and no laws to dictate uh, which side of the road to drive on. Well, we already pretty much have a state with no speed limits, don't we? (laughs) Um, it is very rare to see anyone get pulled over for speeding. It happens, but very rare to see anyone get pulled over for speeding. How many travel up and down the Merritt on a regular basis? Wow. Right? That two-lane skinny road, I I see people all the time, 85-plus, sometimes 100-plus, right? I love to tell traffic stories because I think they relate with everyone. I was take, I, I go to 15 every day. I take my kids to school in Wallingford. And I was going up the other day, and, man, this guy has got to be four feet off my back bumper. And I'm not a slow driver, okay? I'm not going 85, but I'm not a slow driver. And I'm in the left lane. I'm passing cars on, on my right, and I'm probably going 70, 75. This guy's four feet off my bumper. And so I just decided that um, I wasn't angry. My blood pressure never went up a a, a blip, but I just decided that I was going to teach this guy a lesson. And so I slowed down to 65 and matched the speed of the car next to me and kept this guy trapped for about a mile. And man, you're talking about angry. He was fired up. And uh, lo and behold, there's a little spot where cars can merge on. He shot over to that merge lane and shot around the guy. And I mean, he... He told me I was number one in his own way. Um, I waved back with five fingers, okay, amen? Uh, but um, uh, there are, aren't you glad there are civil laws? Uh, now, speed limits aren't really that enforced in Connecticut, and unfor- unfortunately, I, I actually kind of wish they were. I think it would 
bring down the road rage a little bit. But imagine if there were no laws about traffic lights and no laws about which side of the road you drove on. Could you imagine the chaos that would ensue? Right? Aren't you glad for that double yellow line that runs down a two-lane road? And that keeps us safe, does it not? Civil laws are important. Um, we can embrace and accept the importance of civil laws, but we buck the idea of moral laws. We're all thankful for civil laws. Everyone here is thankful for civil laws, but as humanity in rebellion against God, we don't want anyone telling us morally how to live. Please understand that just like traffic laws and civil laws keep us safe and bring order, and uh, moral laws are meant to do the exact same thing. They protect us from hurt and pain. God had given Israel moral laws all throughout Scripture. Ten of them are quite well remembered today. And how did Israel do with these? All right, you know them. Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Same with me if you know them. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor thy father and thy mother. Number six, thou shalt not kill. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. And number ten, thou shalt not covet. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they're laid out very, very, very well. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with our fellow man. God felt as though Israel was holding a passive-aggressive grudge against God because they had chosen to neglect His moral laws and live in disobedience uh, to what He had commanded them to do. Now, watch this. Don't miss what I'm about to say. We obey authority that we respect. We obey authority that we respect. I remember as a student in the 8th, 9th, and 10th grade, we had a teacher in our school named Mrs. Drake. And Mrs. Drake was right out of college. And uh, she, was not cut, she went to college to teach, and she was not cut out for teaching. She later admitted that. She had no re- the students did not respect her because she couldn't control her emotional state. And I remember sitting in her class and watching two boys named Stephen, Stephen Ray, and I don't remember the other boy's last name, but they were just menaces and and pests, and they would work up Mrs. Drake into a a yelling, angry frenzy by giving her a hard time and disobeying her. And Mrs. Drake was not respected by the class because she had no control over her spirit. And then the very next period, we would go sit in Mr. Talley's class, and Mr. Talley was in complete control of his emotions. And uh, one of the Stevens would try the same antic with Mr. Talley that had worked on Mrs. Drake, and he would just sit there and very a matter of fact handle him and, and hold him back after class and deal with him. And you know what? About two weeks into school, Mrs. Drake had lost all control over the class, but Mr. Talley had complete obedience by the kids because they respected him. Watch this. We obey authority that we respect. The Israelites and the ten northern tribes, they completely neglected the commandments of God. You know what they were saying to God? We do not respect you. 
We do not respect you. No, they don't lay out a single accusation against God, but they sure do through their act, uh, with their words rather, but they sure do with their actions. What they are saying to God is, we don't respect you, therefore we will disobey you. Letter A, they accused through their disobedience. Letter B, they accused through their disinterest. They accused through their disinterest. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12 in your Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse number 28. While you're finding your way there, let me circle back around and make this point. Many people hold a grudge against God. They're angry at God. I'll even go further than that. Many people that go to church are angry at God. You say, how do you know? There's some hurt in their life, some struggle in their life, and, and they just don't really get why God would let that happen. You say, well, how do you know? They're, they're, they're holding God, they're putting God on trial. They don't respect the rules of the Bible, they walk all over them and just obey the ones that are convenient for them and neglect the rest of them. You know, I, I enjoy, I hope everyone hears what I'm going to say right here, I enjoy the connection that I make with the crowd on Sunday morning. There's a strong pastor-people connection. I feel 51 weeks out of the year. Uh, you say, not 52? Well, when I preached on obedience the second week of the year, I did not feel a connection with the crowd at all. That was one of the toughest Sunday morning sermons I've ever worked through. You say, well, why didn't you feel the connection? Because I think I hit a lot of people right between the eyes. I think I hit a lot of people. I talked about we only obey when it's convenient for us to obey, and our obedience is oftentimes selfish, and we're not obeying for the right reasons. Listen, when we're living in disobedience to God, what we're saying is, I don't respect your authority, God. I'll do it, why? I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. God, I'm putting you on trial because if you were the supreme being that deserved my obedience, I'd obey you. But you're not. Look at 1 Kings chapter 12 and look at verse 28. This is right after the Rehoboam-Jeroboam split where the kingdom is being divided up. Uh, Jeroboam, the son of Solomon, is going to continue to be the king of the two southern um, uh, tribes. And the ten northern tribes are breaking away. And Rehoboam, they're not related, just have similar names. Or rather, Jeroboam, uh, again, not related, similar names. He's taking the ten northern tribes and he's becoming their king. Look at verse 10. Whereupon the king, that's uh, uh, Jeroboam. Jeroboam took counsel and made two calves of gold and, uh, and said unto them, it, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, and he set the one in Bethel. That word Bethel means house of God. And the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before uh, the one, even unto Dan. What happened here? The, the kingdom splits, and, and, and Jeroboam does not want the people traveling back 
to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. And so instead of building his own temple for them to worship God, he makes golden calves like the same ones that were built at uh, Mount Sinai there by um, Aaron. And, and, and he takes two golden calves and he puts one in the city of Dan and one in the city of Bethel, strategically located for convenience sake so people wouldn't have to travel very far. And he says to them, these are the gods that led you up out of Egypt. He said, don't go back to Jerusalem and worship. Go to Dan or Bethel and worship these false gods uh, uh, there instead. I want to make sure all the teenagers are listening and not doing any talking during the service. Okay, Let's make sure we're paying full attention to, uh, to the message. He's saying here, you go here and worship. You go here and worship. And you know what they did? For the rest of their history, they neglected the God who had chosen them out of heaven, and they chose instead to worship gold. They chose instead to worship idols. They became people who were idolatrous. They showed no interest in God. And now these same people want to turn around and hold a grudge against God because they're being carried away into captivity. When they spent generation after generation after generation doing very little to show God that they loved Him. I see a world who is so quick to accuse God of all of the pain and suffering. And this same world has very little interest in actually following God and loving God. I, I read, as you read through the book of Job, you find Job, he says, Naked came I in this world, naked shall I leave. Right? Uh, the Bible says in all this he sinned God, uh, sin not and curse not God. It says he worshipped God in his time of trial until his friends started coming around and, and making false accusations against them. And, and then you find Job later in the book, he begins to defend himself. And even on a little bit of a level, begins to question why God would let this happen. And then God comes down and says, Job, listen, I am infinite in every way. You are this finite little nothing. Who are you to question me? If I want to bring hurt and pain and suffering and struggle in your life, as the God of the universe, I have every right to do it, and you have no right to question me. You know, one of the ways that we hold a passive-aggressive grudge against God is we just become disinterested in who He is. Here these Israelites are saying, oh, we don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to worship the God who called us and, and loves us and pours down His love on us as a special people group. We will be disinterested. We see that they accuse God through their disobedience. They accuse God through their disinterest. Letter C, notice, they accuse God through their defiance. Through their defiance. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 6 says, Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness. For thou art a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Very graphic language is used. Listen to this. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be not more stiff-necked. What separated the Jews from the Gentiles, in part, was the act of the men being circumcised. And what he's saying here is that in your heart, you are behaving just like a Gentile. 
you are acting as though God does not matter. You are acting as though God is not a thing. You want to live, act, talk, behave exactly like the world around you. You want to be defiant the way the world is defiant toward their Creator. You want to be defiant against me all the same. You have a stiff neck. All of the parents in here and even the grandparents in here, uh, grandparents, you may know this about your grandkids, but you definitely know this about your own children when they were little. You ever had a toddler and, or even a, a, a young primary child, 10, 10 and under? Teenagers do it too sometimes. And you're rebuking and correcting a child. You know, the best way to correct a child, the most effective way to correct a child is to get the eyes. If you can lock eyes with a child, you can generally change their behavior. Can you not? You know what? Children learn this, and they don't want to look you in the eye. Right? That's why some of you, when I start preaching on your sin, you won't look at me. I can remember being that stubborn child and teenager. My dad's rebuking me and correcting me. And uh, a lot of parents have this habit. I know I do. Sometimes my dad would go on and 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 on. All right, I get it. Yes, I'm, I'm a terrible person. You can stop telling me. Right? Why was my dad going on and on and on and on? You know why? Because I wouldn't look at it. I wouldn't look at it. And usually about halfway through, he would say, Boy, look at me. And I would do this right here. Look right back down. My eyes moved up, but my neck stayed stiff and low. Oh, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna look him in the eye any more than I absolutely had to, so I would could prevent being, you know, thrown across the room or whipped or whatever my dad didn't throw me across the room, but you get the idea. When I was really young, my dad would put his hands on my chin, both hands on my face, and he would shift my face and break that stiff neck. So I had no choice but face-to-face look him in the eye. Many, 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 many people are stiff-necked when it comes to obeying God. And you know what this comes down to? It comes down to the word stubbornness. We are so stubborn. How many, sit, how many of you are sitting next to someone who's stubborn? <laughs> yeah, you just told on yourself. If you raise your hand, you're probably the stubborn one. I love asking questions like that because I'm up here and Angela's down there, so she can't raise her hand on me, all right? <laughs> you know what the Bible says about stubbornness? The Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, stubbornness is is the sin of idolatry. Rebellion is is the sin of witchcraft. You are committing idolatry because you are worshiping yourself. I will do what I want and I will be in defiance to God. Let me, let me explain to you a moment what Christian maturity is. Christian maturity is when you reach a heart level 
where you fully accept that God loves you and He has your best interest at heart. And if you will comply and obey His plan and His, His rules, your joy will be maximized. When you emotionally, on a heart level, intellectual level, accept that, then there's just no reason to be defiant. There's no reason to do it any way but God's way. How do you get to a place where you can say like the songwriter, All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. The chorus says, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. You know what that means? That means that when God says, look at me, instead of having a stiff neck that refuses to make eye contact with God, I look at Him. And when He needs to rebuke me, I accept that rebuke. I'm ready to accept that rebuke, and I'm ready to make those changes. You see, these people, they weren't accusing God in this courtroom with, with, with laying out some legal case with some fancy lawyer. No, they had made their case against God for hundreds of years by living in utter disobedience and showing great disinterest and, and, and living in uh, the, the, the greatest defiance possible. And God was done with it. He said, let me call you into court. You want to raise an accusation against me? Your lifestyle is screaming that you're... You're putting me on trial for hundreds of years. Well, let's talk about it. Observation number one, we see the court's audience. Observation number two, we see the people's accusation. Observation number three, let's see the Lord's answer. The Lord's answer. The Israelites, again, through their actions of choosing idolatry and ignoring God, were saying to him, you are not worthy of being followed. We are not on good terms. What was God's answer to their accusation? Letter A, he says, I gave you deliverance. I gave you deliverance. Look at Micah chapter 6 and look at verse number 4. Jesus says, or or rather God says through Micah, as a rebuttal to their behavior, he says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. You know what God's really good at? Parents are good at this too. But God's really good at this, pulling out the history books. Pulling out the history books and, uh, and reminding his people of their heritage. As a parent, isn't it great to be able to look at your child and say, I changed your diaper. Right? I have put a roof over your head and food in your mouth all these years, and you want to act like I don't love you? Right? Isn't that great to have that in your back pocket? Don't go to it too often because it quits working after a while, Right? God pulls out the history books on the Israelites and reminds the people of their heritage. And he asks them basically this question, why are you treating me so poorly? He's asking them, did I leave you in bondage in Egypt? Did I leave you in the wilderness to just die there? Uh, He's asking them, did I allow the residents of your promised land to overtake you and kill you as you were conquering it. When you chose idolatry and you you kicked me to the curb, uh, I I allowed wicked kingdoms to come in and overtake you uh, as a punishment, but when you repented, 
did I leave you in bondage? God is saying to his people, I have delivered you over and over and over and over again. So what caused the Israelites to become so cavalier toward God? Look down at verse 5. Look down at verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. The counsel of Balaam had been their Achilles' heel. What was the counsel of Balaam? You may remember Balaam. He, he, uh, some people have labeled him as a prophet. I don't believe Balaam was a prophet. I believe Balaam uh, was into the occult. I believe that Balaam was a worshiper of the devil. But I think Balaam knew who God was. And I knew, think Balaam knew that he could not curse God's people unless God gave him permission to do that. And uh, uh, Balak sends for Balaam to come and curse God's people as they're en route uh, to their promised land in the wilderness. And uh, God tells Balaam, no, you absolutely can't. Eventually, uh, uh, Balaam goes anyway and uh, uh, through a set of circumstances he arrives and, and, and God says to Balaam I will not let you curse my people in fact I'm going to take over your mouth and when you go to curse them I'm going to bless the people through you and so three times three altars were built uh, uh, idolatrous altars were built a sacrifice was made and Balaam stepped out to curse God's people and a blessing came forth from his mouth and it's a very funny story because Balak is getting more and more and more angry with Balaam, what are you doing? I think Balak probably was as bald as me by the time that was over from pulling out his hair. He was very upset. And finally, Balaam looked at Balak and said, I can't curse God's people because he's just not going to let me do it. He said, but I can tell you how to take them down. He said, you see those Moabitish girls over there? Send them in, the pretty ones. Send them in. Well, not the ugly ones. I mean, come on. You think that would work? Send them down into the camp and get them to mingle with those Hebrew boys and get them to sleep together. And those Moabitish girls will take those Hebrew boys to their house of worship and get them to be idolatrous. Sure enough, Balak sent those girls into that camp. And those boys began to commit sin. Boy, the story that you find in the Bible around this, it's graphic. Boy, it's graphic. God sent death into the camp and killed off a whole bunch of the people that committed the sin. But you know what? This same sin of fornicating with unbelievers, fornicating with this other crowd, continued to plague Israel for the rest of its history. Oh, those pretty girls got those boys into idolatry, and idolatry continued to be a problem. You see, the golden calf that had been worshipped in Egypt by the Egyptians was then worshipped at Mount Sinai, and then ground down to dust and put in the water, and Moses made them drink, and God purged the camp of the idolaters, and they made their way in the promised land, but yet there's more and more and more idolatry, and then the splitting up of the kingdom, the ten northern kingdom. They set up those golden calves. They're worshiping the golden calves. They're being defiant toward God. And God looks at them and says, why are you acting this way when I delivered you out of Egypt? 
Now, God did not deliver me and you out of Egypt. But can I tell you this morning that if you are a born-again believer, God has delivered you from the power of sin and Satan the day He saved your soul. God has put your feet on a path to go to heaven. He gave you deliverance from hell. Oh, there may be some hurt in your life. You may feel like God has let you down in some way. He's let some circumstances take place that are uncouth and unpleasant and unenjoyable. But I'm here to tell you that you are missing the perspective that the God of heaven loves you so much that He killed His own Son on the cross to save your soul from hell. How dare we as believers ever put God on trial when He's done so much to free us. You understand that when we've been in heaven a million years, it's an eternity. A million years, put any time you want on it. Ten million years, a billion years. We're going to look back at the struggles we had here on earth and realize that it was more like just a five-minute bad day. Five minutes of a bad day. We're going to look back and see this little teeny tiny amount of time where we struggled in all of eternity when life is so grand. And you realize the only reason why we'll get to praise God for an eternity is because the God of heaven looked out on us and said, I have pity on them and I love them and I'm going to put my only son on a cross, only begotten son on a cross, to save them and deliver them. And then we sit back and we grumble and gripe because our toe, our toe hurts, we have a hangnail, uh, someone's not treating us right, things are going our way. We got fired from our job. We're having this problem. We're having that problem. We're having this relationship struggle. Well, God, if you loved me, then you wouldn't let that happen. And God says, hold on just a minute. I am preparing a mansion for you in heaven. He has delivered us. How dare we put Him on trial? How dare we call Him into question? Now, if you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, then, my friend, you're missing out. You're really missing out. You see, we're born sinners. We're born uh, condemned under the curse of sin, heading toward hell. But Jesus Christ came in order to give you a fork in the road. And you now have a choice on whether you want to continue down the path uh, of the sin curse to hell or you want to choose the new road that Christ made through His death on the cross. You say, how do I get my feet on that path? Well, you just simply put your faith in Jesus and believe that He is your only way to heaven. You have to understand, this whole false religion of good works, it is false. It is not true. This whole belief that if I'm a good person and I behave well enough and I keep my, my feet between some set of moral lines, that God will let me into heaven one day. No, my, my friend, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says let God be true and every man a liar. We're all wicked, we're all sinful, we're all depraved, we're all heading toward hell, and we turn to Jesus in His grace, and we accept the gift of eternal life purchased by His life on the cross, and He delivers us from hell. You know, I think about those Israelites in Egypt, and all of us here know the story of the Red Sea, or I would assume everyone here knows the story of the Red Sea. Do you know that if God had not parted the Red Sea, they would have gone right back into captivity? It was a miracle by God to part the Red Sea for them to then cross and have the waters close on the Egyptians. And it was a miracle by God that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed on the cross. And when you pass through the blood, the way they pass through the Red Sea, you're given deliverance and forgiveness and and, and a pardon. And you're set free from sin so that you can one day live in heaven with Jesus. 
God looks at the Israelites and says, How dare you call me into contempt? How dare you call me into court? How dare you disobey, show such disinterest, and live with such defiance? I delivered you out of the bondage of Egypt. Letter B, we, say, we see his, his answer. We see letter B, I gave you direction. I gave you direction. For, uh, uh, for I brought thee up, it says there, Micah 6, out of the land of Egypt, verse 4, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee, look here, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, were they perfect? <laughs> they were not perfect. Uh, Moses struck the rock when he should have spoke to it. Aaron, um, he got carried away with building an idol made out of gold, right? I love Aaron's excuse. Well, I don't know. I just threw all the gold in the fire and this, this thing just popped out. <laughs> Come on, Aaron. You could have done better than that. Aaron wasn't real good at thinking on his feet, I guess. And then Miriam, right? Moses married an Ethiopian woman, right? He crossed the, he crossed the, the, the race line in, in marriage, and clearly God doesn't have a problem. I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here. I don't care. Uh, clearly God doesn't have a problem with interracial marriages. Moses married an Ethiopian woman. Mary, uh, Miriam and Aaron complained about it, and God struck down Miriam with leprosy. That is a story in the Bible. Okay, Don't, don't forget that. Miriam had a problem with leadership. And by the way, Miriam confessed her sin and God healed her of that leprosy. What I'm getting at here this morning is that the leadership that God gave Israel wasn't perfect. But my goodness, they sure did their best to lead Israel to love the Lord. I am so glad that God has given us the tools He's given us to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What tools do you have at your disposal to love God and follow God. Well, to start with, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who is to lead you and guide you into all truth. Do you understand that the church era is the only era that has the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer? We are a special, privileged people to have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us to guide us and teach us. Don't yawn at that. That is a big deal. That is a huge deal. By the way, if you get saved, can I just sell it a little bit more? Uh, one perk is that you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you to comfort you and guide you and teach you and lead you. It's a pretty awesome thing to have. Amen. How many of you here remember as an adult, uh, older teenager adult, you got saved and you remember the difference with the Holy Spirit versus without the Holy Spirit? How many of you know what I'm talking about this morning? It's pretty great, isn't it? Pretty great. I got saved as a child, so I don't quite remember that as much. But uh, I've talked to plenty of adults that do and, and, and know the difference. It's pretty awesome. So you have the Holy Spirit of God to lead you and guide you. Know, you know what else you have? You have this thing called the Bible. It's pretty great. We talked about this uh, over the, uh, in our series here, Heart for God. David loved, loved his Bible. Loved it. 
Psalm 119, thy law, thy precepts, thy judgments, thy statutes. He goes on and on and on and on. He has so many adjectives to describe the Bible and, and, and so many uh, 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 synonyms to go on and on about how great the, the, the law is. Why? Because it is a lamp to our feet. It is a light into our path. It, it is a guide to help us get through. It gives us direction. Why are you putting God on trial? You have the Spirit of God to lead you and guide you. You have a Bible to, to teach you and help you. And you know what else? God has given us in the church era. He's given us a local New Testament church where we can come and be grounded and grow in our understanding of truth, in our understanding of the Word of God. A church that has a discipleship program. A church that has a soul winning program. A church that has brothers and sisters that come and encourage one another to grow and go in the Lord. Uh, uh, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And in no way am I going to put myself up on a pedestal or compare myself to Paul. But I'll just say this as the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church, where I am following Christ, get in behind me and follow Christ with me. God has given our church leaders beyond just the pastor who deeply love God. And you get in behind and you go and you follow. And instead of holding God in contempt, instead of holding God, putting God on trial, understand that God, the perfect judge, loves you and He's delivered you from hell. He's provided you direction in your life. There once lived a Jewish family in Czechoslovakia where the son started questioning God and the reports coming about the reports coming out of Germany. The son soon declared himself to be an agnostic. But then the Nazis invaded Czech, and the family was brought into the concentration camps. The son tried to fight back and struck down a Nazi guard. His dad suddenly jumped in and declared that he was the one responsible, and the dad was shot on sight. Body left out as a warning in the streets. In that concentration camp, the bitterness of the man boiled over and he rounded up three rabbis to hold a trial. And they called it the trial of God. In this trial, the rabbis debated about how God could allow the Holocaust to happen. If God had cast off Israel and if Germany was the new chosen people. In the end, they declared God... Shayav, meaning you owe us something instead of guilty. The story ends with the sun setting and everyone slushes away to their evening prayers. How foolish to put God on trial. Let me ask you a question this morning. This is one that, deep, deep, that digs deep down into your soul. One you need to answer. Are you putting God on trial? We need to focus on what God has done for us and ask ourselves this question. Do we as imperfect, finite beings really want to put an infinite, perfect judge on trial? Do you have a controversy with God? Tonight we'll talk about God's punishment for those who live in objection to Him and then God's plan for restoration to those He punishes. Look down at verse 8 of Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We'll be looking at this verse in great detail tonight. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before or rather with thy God. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
We live in a sin-cursed, sin-fallen world that Satan is responsible for. Satan is responsible for all of the cancer in children and all of the pain and suffering and all of the dysfunction and abuse that goes on in this world is a result of Satan leading humanity into sin. And unfortunately, God gets blamed when bad things happen. God takes the brunt of the blame when God is good and the devil is evil. Satan is not only a master at hurting us, he's a master at convincing us that the one who is our healing balm and helper is the enemy, when he is the enemy. We run to the side of Satan and live in rebellion to God, and we celebrate and rejoice over uh, a life of sin and flaunt it in the face of God. We're defiant toward God while we're rewarding the one who is guilty for our pain to begin with. Then we, in our hardness of heart, we can put God on trial begin to blame God and live our life in rebellion to Him because we're hurt. What it really comes down to is we just lack perspective. We fail to understand. How many here today would say this morning, Pastor Lejeune, I may not have everything in life figured out, but one thing I do know is that Jesus saved my soul. I know that if I were to die today, I'd go to heaven, not because of who I am or what I've done, But I know that I put my faith in Jesus Christ alone to be my Savior. Here's my hand in testimony of that. If you're a believer, you've put your faith in Jesus, would you just hold your hand up unashamedly? Hold that hand up for just a moment. Testify to the Lord that you're His child and He saved you. You can put those hands down. And I appreciate those who raised your hand. But I've got to say, I appreciate even more those of you who are honest enough to not raise your hand. If you don't know for sure that you are on your way to heaven. My friend, Jesus Christ left heaven, the Son of God. He who is rich became poor so that we that are poor could become rich. He bore your sin in His body. He suffered and died for you. But He can't make you accept that gift. You have to extend your hand of faith and receive it. Is there one here today with every head bowed and every eye closed? Is there one here today that in the privacy of the moment before me and God, you'd just like to say, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know that I would go to heaven when I die, but I sure would like you to pray for me. If that's you, would you just hold up your hand right where you are? No one else is looking, just me and you and God. Is there one? I don't know that I would spend eternity in heaven. I don't think I would, but I sure would like you to pray for me. Is there one? I see one hand. Is there another? I see another. Someone else? I don't know where I'd spend eternity. If you raised your hand, I'd like to just speak to you just for a moment. Jesus Christ made it so simple. He came to earth for the purpose of becoming your sin and my sin on the cross. He went through hell on the cross so that you would not have to go to hell. And it's as simple as extending a hand of faith through prayer and receiving it. Romans chapter 10 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This calling is a calling of sincerity and desperation. It's a calling of I'm lost in my sin and I need your salvation. When you do so, God takes the gift of eternal life and he gives it to you and you are forever a child of God. He adopts you into his family. He expunges your crimes. And one day when you get to heaven, all God will see is the blood of Jesus that's washed away your sins. It's so simple, anyone can do it. I did it as a four-year-old child. You can do it right where you are right now. 
right where you are, if you're ready to do so, just bow your head and pray this very simple prayer with me. Just pray and ask Jesus to give you that gift of eternal life. Just pray. Just say this under your breath, in your heart. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin is wrong. I understand that the punishment of my sin is death and hell. Thank you so much for dying on the cross in my place and becoming my sin. Forgive me. Give me the gift of eternal life and take me to heaven when I die. My faith is in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name. With your heads